Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Chris Taylor, deputy editor at Mashable.com, about his book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise. The book was published in 2014 by Basic Books. In this fun and informative book, Chris presents a history of Star Wars as a film series and as a cultural phenomenon. Drawing on many interviews and other material, he describes how George Lucas went from the unassuming son of a stationery store owner to the creator of what is arguably the most successful movie franchise in history. Mixing stories of plot development, stressful location filming, and business decisions that often threatened to bring the company down, Chris shows how Lucas was able to develop a universe that is both multi-generational and multinational. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Taylor. Welcome, Chris. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for asking me. Um, I have to tell you how much I enjoyed this book. Uh, I'm a little younger, or a little older than you, excuse me. I was 21 years old in 77 when Star Wars premiered, so I safely could say that I've lived the franchise my entire adult, adult life. Uh, I learned a lot of things in the book that I didn't already know. But before we get to the book itself, why don't you tell us a little bit about your day job uh, and did it help you when you decided you wanted to write this book? <laughs> yes and no is the short answer to that. I am uh, the deputy editor of Mashable, um, which for those of your listeners who don't know it, is uh, we call it the website for the connected generation. But uh, we, we got our start covering social media and technology, and now we cover a wide variety of areas, uh, everything from international news to the sort of viral videos. And um, you know, we have been doing pretty well. We're up to about thirty-five to forty million readers a month, and um, you know, couldn't be more thrilled about our, our growth. So it's nice to be in a part of journalism that is actually growing. Uh, it's not been the case my whole career. I, I was at. Time Magazine and uh, Fortune Magazine um, for many years, and then uh, I sort of quit that side of things altogether and got into the journalism startup side of things. So I, it's it's a lot better, I think, to uh, to be in a growth industry rather than a declining industry. Uh, so that's the day job. And uh, as to whether it helped or hurt, it helped in the sense that I so I do cover Lucasfilm as part of. Uh, Part of the the role that I've carved out for myself as deputy editor, and uh, that that was that was very useful. It did sort of produce some conflicts, I will say, in terms of you know there were many points where Lucasfilm would tell me you know you could write about this for a story, but um, you know please don't use it for the book. So that that left me in a in a, in a quandary here or there. But I, I was pretty much able to navigate that as I uh, as I uh, went through the process of writing. Okay. Uh, well, what brought you to write on the topic in the first place, and when did you discover Star Wars for the first time? 
I will take the second question first. I discovered Star Wars the first time in 1978. Uh, as, as you say, I'm a little younger, and I um, did, first discovered it on the back of a box of cereal, um, a uh, UK cereal called Shreddies. And uh, there it was in 1978, suddenly a sort of a collectible uh, diorama, if you will, that you had to sort of... Uh, you you had to do uh, little characters, little letter set characters, where you sort of press them on and rub them into the into the cardboard, and uh, it just told the story of these droids on this uh, on this rebel ship, and you know the evil Darth Vader chasing them, and the stormtroopers that were attacking. Um, I, I guess I was hooked right from then. I collected all those. And I started seeing posters everywhere for this movie that came out in the UK, uh, where I grew up a little later than it did in the US. It came out in 78. And uh, from then on, it was it was into the comic books and the collectible figures. And then I didn't actually even get around to seeing the movies until 82. So I started off with this distinct awareness that it was a franchise that had a lot of uh, media attached to it, uh, that it was more than just a movie. And it, it translated well to a variety of, of mediums, from, from books to uh, to serial boxes, and, uh, you know, has only continued to do so. So that's that's always been a fascinating thing. Uh, I've always sort of kept up with, with Star Wars fandom through the years, uh, but it was really only when they were sold to Disney uh, in October of 2012 that I took a look uh, at the landscape. I actually wrote uh, an opinion piece for Mashable, that was called um, Star Wars Just Got a New Lease in Life um, and basically argued before anyone else sort of realized this at that, at that point that um, the fact that Lucasfilm had been sold to Disney meant that we would get more Star Wars movies without the controversial uh, involvement of George Lucas. Uh, you know, coming off the prequels, that was actually a, a positive for a lot of people. So, you know, I wrote that, that got picked up a lot of places, got um, you know, got some nice mentions from from Lucasfilm itself. Interestingly enough, and and at that point, I I sort of realized I looked at the landscape of what had been written about about Star Wars, and realized that amazingly there was no complete history of the franchise. You know, there were a lot of biographies of George Lucas, uh, which he hated. You know, for different reasons. We can get into that. But he's, you know, he's never cooperated with, with uh, any uh, any look at his life uh, after the initial biography in 1983. And that was Skywalking, right? Skywalking by Dale Pollock, yes. And um, you know, and then there have been making of books from Lucasfilm about the individual movies, and uh, you know, various other books here and there, but nothing that took the whole of the Star Wars franchise from beginning to end uh, as as an independent entity as it was before the Disney sale. Uh, and just, you know, put the whole history in a single book, but also sort of tried to capture the the cultural impact of this and the business impact of it. Um, you know, so I wanted to write, you know, I'd, a very small ambition, was, which was to write the definitive book about the Star Wars franchise, uh, <laughs> setting the bar low for myself. That, uh, Why not? George Lucas did the same thing. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you know, I, I learned many things personally from from the experience of of covering his life and his work so much and and one of them was very definitely that you you do need to to dream big to to achieve 
something that that is going to stand as a testament of the ages. So, so yeah, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps a little bit of arrogance is is needed at that stage. So, uh, basically, I spend the next two years uh, researching, writing, and interviewing, and traveling the world, and going to the the major Star Wars convention, uh, you know, the Lucasfilm license convention called Celebration in Germany. You know, going to Japan and looking at the fandom there. Um, and, uh, you know, interviewing a lot of the actors and, uh, you know, various crew and um, a lot of Lucasfilm people who shall remain nameless because that was sort of my <laughs> behind-the-scenes right. look with these folks. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, this book is the result. And it's, uh, you know, George Lucas likes to say that his... Uh, that, that the original movie, the original Star Wars, was about 25% of the vision that he had for that movie. And I'm a little more optimistic. I, I would say this book is sort of roughly 33% of the vision that I have, but, um, <laughs> but it seems to be doing well regardless and as it stands up well. And, um, and you know, I think it, it gets most of the way there um, on, on a lot of the, the notions that I had for, for how it was going to work. You know, the question is, did you have it all planned out in advance like Lucas started to tell everybody as time went on that he had everything <laughs> planned out in advance? Yes, which which of course was a lie. But um, <laughs> no, I, I did not really have it that planned out in advance either. Except the, I mean, I, I will tell you the, the where we where we really started with this. And I talked about this a lot with my uh, my agent and, and uh, the agency that that you worked for. Um, you know, we we had the title, "How Star Wars Conquered the Universe." It is a reference that you know a very small number of readers will get to Flash Gordon. Um, of course, the, the the number one influence um, on George Lucas and the creation of Star Wars was was Flash Gordon, and um, and of course the serial how how it, well right. the serial was Flash Gordon conquers the universe, so this this made sense as a title, and you know what what we sort of we sort of discussed this and we said well you know you could take this conceptually and you could make a book that um, that had various chapters like. How Star Wars conquers religion. How Star Wars conquered uh, politics. Uh, you know, how Star Wars conquered merchandising. It's an obvious one. Um, so there was that kind of conceptual approach, and that definitely stuck with me. But the more I realized that there just was this crying need for a complete history, the more I was torn between the the narrative approach, the historical approach. Um, that any any historian would take, just sort of telling the story from from A to Z, and and that conceptual approach. And I wanted to try and get at both of them. So it took me a while to figure out how best to do that. Um, you know, the, the the subtitle of the book is, um, you know, the past, present, and future of a multi billion dollar franchise. And uh, I, that's initially how I had the book constructed. Was you know the first third was the past was the whole history. Um, the second third would be the present, which is largely the story of fandom and, um, you know, how it has affected merchandising and, uh, you know, mo- the, how movies are sold, um, you know, marketing and movies in general. And and then the future, you know, would, would be not only what are we going to see in episode seven, because I knew that anything I wrote in the book would be dated as soon as it hit the shelves in that regard, but also how long can this franchise last? You know, it's, it's come back from the dead so many times. 
um, and and overshot all of our expectations. You know, when we we thought it died in the mid eighties, mm-hmm. died uh, after the prequels, um, and it's come back every time. So, and it seems to have, as I explore in the book, a lot of this uh, universal appeal um, that uh, just suggests that it is this this incredibly deep, resonant uh, story that we, we all remember. We all, we all know the contours of the Star Wars story, uh, even people who haven't seen the movie. Right. So is it, is it maybe, um, is, it, is it a mythology that will uh, stand for the ages? And, and in that, I was very influenced by a book that I believe is called Uncloaked, um, and it's about Little Red Riding Hood. The tale of Little Red Riding Hood, and that's how that tale has lasted for hundreds of years in different guises. And that, so that sort of started me down the road of thinking, well, you know, maybe Star Wars could last for for a hundred years, which is something that Lucas said, um, sort of offhandedly, um, in a video that discussed the Star Wars sale, the Lucasfilm sale. Um, so that was the that was the initial structure, and then. Um, Obviously, as time went on, there didn't quite uh, there wasn't quite enough balance uh, in in that between those sides of the book. So it became more of a back and forth mm-hmm. sort of thing, where I spend one chapter talking about the history, and then that gives us a springboard into talking about a particular area of the culture of it, right? Of, uh, the way it yeah. exists in the world. In fact, that was going to be what I was going to talk and ask you about was the structure. <clears throat> the fact that rather than doing a straight A to Z history, you included chapters, you would you would stop the history for a little while and then include a chapter dealing with cultural aspects, which I found those were the parts that I found incredibly interesting, not that the rest of the, the history part wasn't, but just to get a better sense, because one of the things about Star Wars that I think a lot of people, especially in the United States, don't understand is that it has a international appeal that we don't always see and yet because of your cultural chapters you got a real good chance to see where you know what people in other countries and in other areas how they were uh, experiencing the whole concept why did you believe that those stories fit so well within your overall story well it is uh, as you say it's it's very interesting it's fascinated me for a while that it, there just doesn't seem to be a culture or country on the planet that hasn't embraced the story of Star Wars as its own. Um, it, it does seem to have that, that incredible mythic universal appeal. And, uh, you know, um, so, but the structure, you know, you, you ask about the, the going back and forth between the, the present day and the history. I mean, I think what you've, uh, what really st- strikes you when you look into the history of Star Wars is how much it was not expected to be a hit, um, which is just utterly inconceivable to use my favorite word from the Princess Bride. Uh, you know, but it really was inconceivable in those days that something like this would, would go on to the success that it did. I mean, it was such a different world. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Ben Burt, the sound designer on, on Star Wars and, still with Lucasfilm today, and he said the best thing that I could possibly imagine about the success of Star Wars was that we would have 
a table at next year's Star Trek convention. (laughs) And and I love that. And it just, you know, we, we have been so bombarded with comic book movies and, and Lord of the Rings and, and just, you know, the incredible success of science fiction and fantasy in the 21st century as a genre kind of blinds us to the fact that this was just, this was going nowhere. This was for kids and, you know, special effects was moribund. And I think that that when you go back and forth uh, between the history and the present day, that really jumps out at you. You know, when you go back, you go, for example, from uh, George Lucas sketching pictures of space soldiers in art class, which is apparently something he did an awful lot of, to and then you take it forward to the 501st Legion, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the stormtrooper... Uh, society that now spans the globe right uh, where they have thousands of screen accurate stormtroopers you know so he he's there sketching this this notion of uh, space soldiers and and uh, and there they are you know now they they are real there actually is a legion of space soldiers wandering the planet so and that they're I the bad guys this. and they're the bad guys the bad guys doing good as they as they call themselves they do an awful lot of work for charity but um, but I love that that whole concept that we can have these ideas and they manifest in the world in such completely unexpected ways. Um, you know, uh, my, my former boss, Walter Isaacson, called this book a, a creativity manual, which I was very flattered by, but that was also very much what I was trying to get at. This notion that you can go, you can see how something goes from just a few scribbles in a notebook Mm-hmm. to something that just ignites the imaginations uh, of an entire planet. Yeah, I so, see, Walter, you got his uh, his blurb right at the top of the <laughs> book, so that's good. Yes, yes, I was lucky enough to, to work for Walter at a time, so, uh, you know, he was he was very kind enough to blurb it. But, um, but yeah, absolutely, you know, that that's... Um, I, I hope it worked. I endeavored to make it work, the, the switching back and forth, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully there, there is enough thematic resonance that uh, the reader won't feel too much whiplash from that. Well, the funny part about it is when, when the first one came along, I said, mm, that's interesting. And then the rest of the book started. But then I got to the next one. I said, hmm. Then when you stopped, when you started to get into the more linear part again, I said, where's some more? Co-? You know, it was almost like <laughs> I wanted another culture chapter. But, yeah. you know, that but that part of it, it just showed how they built and, and what they taught. Because you're right. A lot of that information, it's the kind of thing that only many of the fans would know. And yet it is the most interesting part. I mean, yes, it's it's six movies about to be seven, but it's everything. It's not just the movies. That's where the whole thing lies. It's a, it's a universe because there's more to it than six movies. I will tell you that there are a number of uh, insights into the book writing process, but there were more of those uh, modern-day culture chapters that kind of got incorporated into the rest right. of the book during the editing process, um, specifically focusing on politics and on space exploration Mm. so you'll you'll see where else they've gone it's interesting because you mentioned about it wasn't supposed to be a success and i think part of the part of the issue as a historian that i that i've always grappled with when i talk to people about history is that we have a tendency of looking at past events in our modern day light and you can't do that. You have to go back and see what it was like at the time to try to come up with a better sense. 
I mean, for example, you even said it in 78, you hadn't seen the movies, you didn't see them for another four years. And at the time, the only way to see those movies was to go to the theater. There were no video recorders, there was no home video. I mean, that was the only way to see them. Mm. And if you, it's one of the reasons why people, I think, saw it so many times in the theaters because that was the only way they could. But, um, well, you did have those little tiny, uh, the, the, the cameras, the sort of the toy cameras right. that would play a single scene. Right. And, uh, and I, went to, uh, I went and saw some of those at uh, Rancho Obi-Wan, which is, I talk about this in the book, is the you know, Guinness World Record uh, largest collection of Star Wars merchandise. Right. And, uh, and it's just fascinating to see these things. So you'd have the uh, Han Solo shooting Greedo scene from the cantina, uh, just just loaded onto this camera, and that was an actual viable product, which you know in in the, in the age of YouTube just uh, is insane to think that that would actually uh, sell. Um, you know, we, we can just pull out our phones and, <laughs> and watch the same scene today. But but yeah, that was that was the closest you got to taking the movie home with you. Although actually, it is interesting that Star Wars has not yet come out on. Uh uh, digital, it's not available on iTunes, for example, and or any of the other uh, digital formats. It's still just Blu-ray and DVD. Still, it has point. yeah, it has always been late to to new formats, and you know part of that is uh, the perfectionist approach that that Lucas took. You know, he really wanted to get things right and change a few things about the movies for the DVD release <laughs> in two thousand and four. Right. And, uh, you know, controversially enough. And then he changed things again for the Blu-ray uh, release. Of course, you know, the most famous, you know, we mentioned Han and Greedo. That is obviously the most famous right. uh, example of that. And it led to the whole Han shot first movement. But, um, but you know, he, even between the DVD release and the Blu-ray release, the, the timing of, of Greedo's shot was changed. Right. Uh, was moved 11 frames forward. For the Blu-ray, <laughs> it's just such you know such a perfect example of the perfectionism of the director. Well, and it's become a running joke too because yeah. I still my one of my favorite lines of all time in the Big Bang Theory was they were the guys were about to watch the Star Wars trilogy and they were kept getting interrupted and finally Howard says we have to start watching this before Lucas changes it again. <laughs> Yes, yes. It's, and it's interesting because that, that is now a, a period of time that has ended. Um, right. There will be no more tweaking. And what we have in the Blu-ray version is, as far as Lucasfilm is concerned, the definitive version of Star Wars. Right. Um, they do not acknowledge the existence, basically, of, of other versions. Um, so even, even that DVD release that you might have on your shelf is not you know, considered the official final Star Wars release, um, which is very bizarre. It's very, very strange. And, of course, it led to um, many, many fans on the Internet filling in the gaps um, by creating their own um, despecialized versions, they're called, uh, the sort of attempt to restore what you would have seen in 77 right. in, in perfect digital format. Um. I was immediately drawn in the introduction and the story of George James Sr. in the the Navajo tribe. Talk a little bit about that event because it just seemed to be a perfect way to start the book. It really turned out to be that way, didn't it? Um, So that actually, that side of things actually got started 
uh, earlier in 2012, we had the um, 35th anniversary of Star Wars and discovered that a member of our staff here at Mashable had not seen the original movie. And we were just so blown away by that notion that, you know, someone in our midst had not seen this defining film that we thought, okay, this is a great opportunity for a live blog. You know, we'll, we'll have her tweet about it. And we discovered that it wasn't, you know, you can't really go home again, right? You know, it, it was very much a, there were all these layers that she brought to it of um, the commercial experience of Star Wars that everyone encounters, you know. R2-D2 was for her a Pepsi cooler that, that lived under the bleachers at her high school. Um, you know, she'd heard a lot of the phrases. She already knew that Darth Vader was Luke's father that I was mulling over this, that I first heard about the Navajo Nation Museum in Window Rock, Arizona, producing their very fir- the very first movie to ever be translated into any Native American language, which was Navajo Star Wars. But of course, I, you know, as soon as I heard about that, I knew I, I had to see this. And, you know, on the one hand, it's this wonderful historical... Um, example of, uh, of a, a group of people trying to save a language by, you know, uh, appropriating a movie, if you will, by appropriating a piece of Western culture and just saying, you know, hey, we're, we're going to make this ours as well. And so Star Wars is, is perfectly malleable. Uh, as, as I mentioned, you know, every culture around the planet loves this movie. So uh, it, it just has applicability everywhere. So, you know, that was a great example of that. But at the same time, the back of my mind throughout the whole process was, Am I going to find someone who, you know, in, in this audience who, who just is coming to Star Wars completely fresh for the first time? And uh, George James Sr., who was a, a code talker um, uh, in World War II, he was a Iwo Jima veteran, um, was the closest I came, at least before the movie, to finding someone who had not really, really not seen it before and really not familiar with with any of the concepts or the characters. Um, but as I mentioned in the book, even he had just a, a little piece of the Star Wars code in his head, um, despite being, you know, uh, a, a guy who lives in a mountain that is completely blocked off by snow for about half the year and doesn't have a TV and, you know, sleeps under sheepskin. So I thought that was a, a great example of just how far uh, Star Wars has penetrated the the cultural imagination. Right. Um, speaking of that whole introduction, you weren't afraid to include yourself in the book from mm. the introduction to other events. What did you consider to be your best experience from these various activities in preparing in working on the book? Wow. Um, you know, I, I loved it all. Uh, but I was, uh, I tell you, I, I did not expect to make as many friends as I did in the Star Wars fan community. Um, that, that was very surprising, uh, that it would, you know, I just thought of, yeah, I, I thought of it as a job, you know, this, this was uh, a book that I had to write and I had to sort of get everything right. And I had to, uh, do justice to this franchise and, um, I didn't really think of that sort of implication of, um, you know that you you get to you get to meet new people. You get to interview uh, interesting people. You get all sorts of uh, connections uh, that you didn't expect, and that that's you know that's very much the the lesson of or the the original version of the Force, as I've said several times in the book, is 
is the force of others. And uh, Lucas, when, when he was boiling down all of global religion, was, was really trying to, um, to explain that that is sort of the basis of all religion. It's sort of, you know, is, is, is empathy, is uh, community, is, uh, you know, is the golden rule. And, um, you know, he, he encountered that because he got so much help throughout his life and his film career. And and I have very much encountered that uh, with with this too. I mean, I you know I uh, encountered people in Japan who I wouldn't have spoken to, uh, you know, were it not for this book. So so I just say you know that the whole variety of uh, places that I've been, and people that I've met, and uh, interviews that I've done, and you know, getting to talk to Anthony Daniels who played C three PO, Billy plays. Dee Williams plays continues to play. C-3PO and, and has, you know, developed this interesting symbiotic relationship, um, you know, getting, getting to talk to Peter Mayhew while he was still in his wheelchair waiting for the knee operation mm-hmm. that would allow him to play Chewbacca again. Um, you know, just, just some incredible experiences like that. And, and uh, to find out, you know, just, just going on the, the force of others theme, to really get the sense that it, it is possibly the most inclusive fandom on the planet, um, in the sense that all you really need to to be in the Star Wars club is to have seen the first movie. That's pretty much it. And, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the lowest barrier to entry of any group of fans. You know, if you, if you go to a Trek convention, there is a certain, you know, I don't want to say snobbishness, but... There is that sense of you know everyone's kind of trying to outdo each other with how much they know, how much, how many episodes they've seen of the various shows. Have they seen all ten or eleven? Or I can't even remember how many Trek movies there are now. I've lost. Um, well, depends on how you count the two newer exactly. ones too. <laughs> um, so, so you know, other fandoms have this sort of insularity to them. Um, I think the same is true of, of of Doctor Who, another fandom. I'm, familiar with um, and I sort of expected that from, from Star Wars as well and I couldn't have been more wrong you know you, you can just you can have any you can, you can divide it up any way you like you can just say I'm, I'm just uh, an original trilogy person I don't believe in the prequel trilogy <laughs> I'm not prepared to acknowledge it exists and that's fine you can still go to these conventions you can still dress up as a stormtrooper without having to acknowledge the clone troopers um, you know, I, I know a member of the, the 501st Legion who says uh, there are only two movies. You know, he doesn't even acknowledge the existence of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you haven't quite found anyone who, who goes any further than that and just says there's only one movie in existence because you know, we we tend to sort of universally recognize the uh, the brilliance of Empire Strikes Back. But Yeah, uh, but it's interesting and you talk about it wasn't Star Wars wasn't supposed to be successful. Mm. That the whole thing, if you really want to boil it down, the whole thing, the whole universe, turned on whether Empire was good or not. Mm. Had Empire been a nothing special sequel or had failed, that mm-hmm. might have been the end of it. Which is again what everyone expected. It was another one of these cases of uh, people underestimated Star Wars, and it was very hard to. Uh, sell any uh, Empire Strikes Back products, uh, as as Lucasfilm found. You know, everyone just assumed 
the original movie was a fluke and uh, there wouldn't be any sort of big merchandising bonanza, especially after the holiday special. You know, you've got to remember the, the impact that had on, on a generation of kids. Uh, the, the dawning horror of, uh, of watching that thing and realizing how bad it was. Um, so it really was not a, not in any way, shape, or form a, a done deal that, that Empire was going to be a, a great sequel. We, we didn't really have any examples of great sequels back then, did we? I mean, Godfather, Godfather Part Two is the only one that most people will point to as being a great sequel, yeah. and yet, and it's a completely different genre. We had nothing yeah. in the fantasy or science fiction realm that you could consider to be great sequels. Certainly, certainly. James uh, Bond would have would have fit, but those really weren't sequels; they were just additional stories. Exactly, and it's interesting that they. You know, if you go back to the early interviews with, with Lucas and the producer of Star Wars, Gary Kurtz, they they do bring up James Bond a lot, more than they ever would later on. You know, when, when Star Wars started to stand on its own as a franchise, they didn't mention this again. But they definitely had this notion that it was going to be a James Bond-style franchise in the sense that different directors would take it on. And it wouldn't necessarily tell the same story, it would be in the same universe, um, but you know Lucas liked to compare it to a cathedral, and you know he's he's done the he's done the the groundwork, and now everyone can have fun adding the gargoyles. He said, uh, but yeah. they really didn't turn out that way. Except now it kind of is because we have we finally have spin-off movies in the works, right? Uh, so that's that's very much the the vision that, that George had originally. It's interesting because one of the things. So much of the book talks about the struggles he had yeah. and part of this whole he was willing to let other people come in and then he never did. Mm. And it was almost like he did not want to really let go even though he kept saying he was going to, like he was going to make his experimental films. Yes. Um, so what struck you? Why would he continue to put himself through the stresses of writing, producing and directing even though he kept saying you know, he felt it was worth letting other people – play in his sandbox, so to speak. There is that incredible tension throughout this narrative between Lucas wanting to walk away from all of this. You know, he's very much not a uh, an out-front kind of guy. He's very shy. He loves to stay behind the scenes. Uh, he's no showman like Walt Disney. You know, he, he's just, uh, you know, uh, he's a nerd, basically. <laughs> he's a, a geek dad, as, as, as they describe him at, at Lucasfilm. You know, that's and that's very much who he is. That's what his personality is. So he he didn't want all this stress um, that an introvert would experience going onto the set where you have a thousand people on the payroll. Um, I mean, he had such a dreadful experience directing the original film and was completely a fish out of water with the more experienced crew in London that he, you know, it took him more than two decades to ever actually direct a movie again. Um, but then again, you know, he did sort of have this sense that he was going to direct uh, both The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi by remote control, <laughs> almost. Um, you know, and he, he still found that even though he wasn't, he was nominally not the director of either movie, either movie there were just an incredible amount of questions that only he could answer uh, that, that he had anticipated. Um, there was there's that aspect of it, you know, that he 
he wanted to let it go, but then he just he saw what happened when he let it go, and it looked like the holiday special. Uh, you know, so that that was a very formative experience, I think. And uh, you know, and, and then Empire was go- a good experience in terms of the results. Uh, Irvin Kirshner, obviously, being the director on that movie, and um, a director that you very much couldn't uh, control by remote control. Right. Um, but at the same time, he nearly lost his shirt. I mean, he was days away from not being able to make payroll. Right. Uh, there were all sorts of shenanigans with the banks and various loans that, that he needed to go through on that. So that was a really painful, formative experience. And that's why for Return of the Jedi, he, you know, A, chose a director, Richard Marquand, who was very easy to control, mm-hmm. as it were, um, you know, because he was a much more inexperienced um, director, British, mostly TV director at that point. And um, and at the same time, you know, he, he chose a producer that was absolutely insistent on bringing the uh, the movie uh, in under budget. So so that was his preferred method of doing things. And he realized that, and then he again he did try to walk away from the whole thing. So you you have that that sort of thing that he very much said, you know, thanks but no thanks to Hasbro when they tried to uh, or Kenner as it then was when they tried to come in and say, hey, we want to revive the the Star Wars action figures and about how about this whole new plot? Uh, so he said no thanks to that. Um, so yeah, he's he's always trying to get away from it, but he's always drawn back into it. And he he talks a lot about how he he can't get away from it because the characters are in him now. Mm-hmm. There were very very many um, times when, especially in recent years, when Lucas describes Star Wars as something that is happening to him. And and that's really something I tried to convey in the book. And if you know, if I want to regret this, that I didn't convey this more. This notion that the story, you know, once you start the ball rolling on a story like this, and it takes over the amount of imaginations that it has, it really has a life of its own. It's almost as if it's its own entity, you know, its own uh, physical being. And uh, you know that there is this great quote that, that Lucas had in 2010. To talking to John Stewart about this, about you know, Star Wars threw me across the room and threw me up against a wall, and you know, it, it, it insisted on continuing. It insisted on being born. It con- insisted on having these sequels and these prequels. Right. And it really took him a long time to reconcile himself with that. But he, you know, it was in him. The characters were living in them. You know, he he knew them like friends, and, and he really couldn't let that go. Speaking of which, let's talk about the prequels. Um, you wrote a chapter, and, and, I mean, how to learn to love the prequels. Um, how and, I stopped worrying and learned to love the prequels. Right, and you went through the seven stages of grief. Um, what was the biggest, I mean, I did see all three. I had my problems with them. I thought the plots, the concepts, I could see what he wanted. Um, I understood the plotting. I, I really did feel like I... You you compared it to uh, what was going on at the time, and I and and some of the the United States war issues, and I could see where all that was. Uh, what do you, what's the biggest complaint about the prequels by that you heard the most, and what what do we learn to say as a response to those if we wanted to love the prequels? <laughs> well, it it really comes down to the dialogue, doesn't it? Um, I mean, not not just the the actual written dialogue on the on the page of the script, which is 
bad enough, but sort of the way that it was edited um, felt very clunky to a lot of people. Um, and, uh, you know, Lucas very much had his defense ready against that, which is that it's you shouldn't listen to the dialogue. You should treat this as if it's a silent film uh, or a symphony or a jazz riff. Uh, as he's described it on many occasions, it's you know it's about the sound of it. It's about the babble of it, not necessarily what they're saying. So he's he's quite upfront about the fact that he doesn't write very good dialogue. Um, it was a great shame, I think, that he didn't insist on being rewritten by anyone, uh, as he was for the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, with the original trilogy we had uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz rewriting roughly thirty percent of the original movie. You had Lawrence Kasdan rewriting pretty much all of the dialogue in Empire Strikes Back right. and Return of the Jedi, um, which worked really well because, you know, Lucas came up with more of the stories of uh, Empire and Jedi than we give him credit for. Um, but it, it was that sort of essential polish, that, that tension between him and another writer that he really needed and uh, the movies needed to be great. And when you, I mean, when you read... Lucas's draft of The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I think he went through two of the drafts on that film. It's just, it's, it, all the concepts are there, but the dialogue is so clunky. It's so bad. I mean, I, I always remember the, the line at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, as he would have had it, where Luke says to Leia, you know, um, Han is better for you. I've been swept into a different sphere. All right. Uh, I mean, just, you know, that, those are the directions that he goes in, which I think he's fine with because he always saw this as kind of this deliberate, you know, Flash Gordon homage, this space fantasy thing that was supposed to be a bit clunky mm-hmm. and a bit sort of Saturday morning serialish. And, um, you know, then I guess the, the problem is on us for, for taking it way too seriously. Um, so you know there there are many ways that you can do it. You can view it on you can view it on mute. You can change the order of the movies. You can uh, refuse to acknowledge the existence of the Phantom Menace altogether. Um, you know and watch it in what's called machete order. Uh, but yeah, there, that, that chapter is full of strategies to get around the prequel problem. Yeah, that would have been an interesting ending to Empire. Han's better for you, even though he's. Now, completely, we don't know where he is. He's been captured, but he's still better than you than I am. But, he may not even come back in the next movie, but... But he's better than you, than mine. Anyway, speaking of which, um, also related to fan reaction, one of the biggest issues with the revival of the series by Disney was the removal of what is called the expanded universe. Mm. Um what is this? I mean, explain it to people who might not understand that completely. And what was so controversial in the fact that it actually isn't the most, and many of the fans are very unhappy about this aspect. So all of the novels and video games and comic books and basically everything with the licensed Star Wars name on it that was not written by or had input from George Lucas... Uh, which is a huge body of work, was known collectively as the expanded universe. And there was always some question about, you know, what what level of, of canon was this? And uh, the, the way 
Lucasfilm had arranged it prior to the Disney sale was this very confusing hierarchy of canons, which basically said that there is this G-level canon, G for George, and that that is the movie, and that is the Clone Wars TV show, and it's anything George has direct involvement in, and that can at any time supersede the canon that is written in uh, in those novels. And, um, I mean, it, it got to the point where Lucas was able to just sort of casually, as a joke, um, change the name of a character or um, change the, the home world of Obi-Wan Kenobi to flatter Jon Stewart um, and, and, and have a you know, joke at his expense. Um, you know, and then it just sort of had to be, that had to be real. Uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi does come from the planet Stew John. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be in that position. It's wonderful to be George, right? You just get to rewrite everything that all these other writers have slaved over for years. So once he left the picture, there was always this confusion of, well, are we going to continue this division between G-level canon and all of these other levels, um, you know, of content? And uh, what finally happened, they announced... Uh, you know, a little earlier this year, was basically all of the expanded universe, all the novels, comics, video games, never officially happened. All of that content became quote-unquote legends, is the new banner that's on it. The idea being that these were just stories that were told around the campfire. Mm. Um, So all of the stuff that happened in it, you know, not to to get too spoilerific, but... um, Certain of the uh, the main protagonists of Star Wars had children, and right. you know those children went on to become Jedi and so on and so forth. Um, you know that never happened. Um, so, you know what what they've got in place now is a single canon, uh, which in one respect is great. It flattens the hierarchy, um, and uh, it allows this new group called the Lucasfilm Story Group that was created after, after George left the company um, to kind of guide the creation of new novels and new movies and new TV shows such as Star Wars Rebels and to integrate them in interesting ways and to allow the whole thing to have much more integrity, which a lot of the novels didn't because they contradicted each other and it was kind of a big mess. But um, So there, you know, there were a lot of fans that were happy with that. There were a lot of fans that were unhappy with that as they're unhappy with any change. Um, but they've also said that it doesn't mean, you know, if you have certain favorite characters from the novels, like Mara Jade or, uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, they, they may still come back in, in, um, some altered form in the official Star Wars universe. You know, for all we know, Thrawn could be in, uh, episode seven. Right. We we really, uh, don't know anything about this, but it's, um, you know, it, it. I like it fundamentally because it creates a um, a complete sense of mystery and, and jeopardy because we don't know what happened to Han, Luke, and Leia in the intervening thirty years, and um, you know, it. You don't get any sort of inherent advantage um, by having read all the novels, right? Um, you know, but that, but they can reuse these great characters in different ways. So if, if I, if I bought all the novels over the last 15, <laughs> 20 years, 
I, I might think about this differently, but uh, you know, being that I was much more of a casual fan than that, I'm actually quite excited to see what they do with all these spare parts. Well, the same thing happened with Sherlock Holmes and mm. many others where the so-called canon of the books, depending on the author or depending on the on the series, you run into this exact same issue. Although there's at least one thing from the expanded universe that made it into the final films, and that's the name of Coruscant. Indeed. Which, so that that's one thing that are in the final movies that came out of the expanded universe. <laughs> yes, we can thank Timothy Zahn for the capital of the galaxy being called Coruscant and not had Abaddon <laughs> or it was going to be that's right but I know I've read quite a bit where some of the people are they're just they're talking about how they're just not going to buy the new books they're not yeah. going to read the new books and I'm saying what <laughs> I mean, comic books have gone through this since there have been comic books especially in the you know since Marvel and DC have started with their worlds that the number of times stories have changed and they've started from scratch and they've redone it and right well, they always had retconning, right? right. Is this particular comic book term? Um, but what this allowed Lucasfilm to do was was not was not retcon. In fact, it's they've already always tried to stay away from that notion that we're we're, we're just going to rewrite um, the universe, uh, you know, in retrospect. Um, you know that that was very much uh, Leland Chi, the keeper of the holocron, was very against that uh, from the beginning, and. Doing it this way, you know, killing those other levels of canon is is a very, very drastic amputation, as I put it in the book, mm-hmm. rather than rather than a retcon. So basically they the patient lost all his limbs, but he's he's not going to be, you know, reborn as a new patient. You know, the the Star Wars story will survive. And what's interesting is really the the pre prequel books they're still there, and as far as we know, they'll never; those will never change because there's nothing in them that we we don't know already from the movie. So those are less important. It's the stuff that occurred afterwards that that'll be the ones that um, are most, you know, how that whole change took place. I I wouldn't be so sure about that. I think mm. that um, you know we we definitely got the sense from a lot of the rumors that we've heard about Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. That what what is actually awakening is something pretty ancient. You know, there was some talk that the title of the movie was going to be the Ancient Fear, um, but that we're actually going to see uh, something that ties in a lot more to the the pre prequel okay. era, potentially you know returning, perhaps an ancient enemy who's been around all along. You know, um, we really don't know. But yeah, as officially, even all of that old Republic stuff, right. Is is uh, has been moved over into legends. That's true. Um, do you? You? I mean, no. You've you've pretty much said this at the beginning, but I'm going to come back to it since it's one of my questions. Do you believe that Disney saved the Star Wars universe? Do you think the Clone Wars was likely going to be the end before Lucas sold the company? That's a good question. I mean, I do know that there was discussion. Uh, you know how casual it was. I don't know, but there was definitely discussion for a long time of. Should we should we do episode seven? Um, you know, George discussed it. His producer Rick McCallum discussed it. Um, I mean, they, there was definitely talk that that might be one way to fund the Star Wars TV series that never was called Star Wars Underworld. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that they it would have been very tempting. Um, 
if you're trying to keep Lucas from running as this dynamic machine um, to kind of say, well, hey, we, maybe we should just do, like, you know, let's get the old gang back together and, um, you know, do a, do another movie. And uh, I described it in the book as, you know, it's another Star Wars movie is kind of a, a piggy bank. And uh, it's so tempting to break into that piggy bank and, you know, make another quick uh, $300 million and, uh, you know, and then see what you can do with that. Uh, you know, spin it forward a little bit more. I think that without Disney, uh, they would have to have done it eventually because none of the other Lucasfilm properties were were making enough money. You know, even uh, LucasArts, the video game side of things, um, relied increasingly on a stream of Star Wars content. So you would have had to have fed that beast somehow. Um, so I think it was inevitable, and I think that the uh, doing it in, in concert with the Disney cell, because of course uh, George started writing the treatments for episodes seven, eight, and nine before he made the actual sale, because you know that obviously increased the value of the franchise if there were new stories that came with it. Um, you know, so so to do it in conjunction that way, I think was was a was a genius move. Um, but yeah, I think fundamentally you had to. The franchise had to move on. It had to leave its original host. You know, if, if we if we uh, follow uh, George's notion that it is this sort of separate entity that's throwing up, it up against a wall, um, it, it had to move on. And it's, you know, currently found a new host in J.J. Abrams, and it will have uh, different hosts after that, like, you know, the director, Ryan Johnson. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, we... We will we will see what the result is, but my my suspicion is that you know the 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 Pixarification of uh, of Lucasfilm has has already commenced, which is basic basically just means you know it's a hit generating machine, so leave it alone right. and uh, let it let it run its own thing, but just without the uh, the helicopter parenting of the of the original creator. It's interesting. One of the things that I'm in everything I've read so far about seven that I'm really looking forward to is the fact that we get, we're getting away from the all digital concept where one of the things that to me took away a little bit from the prequels, especially two and three was the fact that virtually everything was done in front of a green screen. Mm. And to me, the concept that we actually are going to have some real sets brings it back to star Wars for me. Now that's just me. Maybe the first that part of it didn't bother most people, but it did. It did to me. It just seemed a little bit jarring that so much of the first three movies were so different from the middle three. For that reason, it definitely felt different. And and the irony of that is, it sort of you know CGI was a lot closer to George's original vision. Right. Um, he was he was always much more of an animator kind of guy. He was. You know, he wanted to work for Hanna Barbera as as a kid. Um, you know, he he really he, he he's sort of this goofy director. He he said that a number of times. Um, you know, he's a goofier director than people give him credit for, and he he was always fascinated by animation and CGI. Really, really fit the bill for him. He hated having to use puppets, right. but for the rest of us, you know, the, the puppets and the, and the um, the real life special effects of the original trilogy were Star Wars, and it sort of had that, you know, it was in that oeuvre, and um, you know, we liked that. 
So we developed this different idea of Star Wars than, than the one that George Lucas had. And they were in competition for those three movies, these, these two concepts of Star Wars. And it is interesting, as you say, that J.J. Abrams has been um, you know, flagging so clearly for his uh, potential audience, for the potential older audience of all Star Wars fans that, you know, look, it's, it's safe to come back now. <laughs> you know, we're going back to uh, the original style effects. They will still use t- CGI. Right. I mean, the way Kathleen Kennedy puts it is that we're going to use every tool in the toolbox. Um, so it'll be in there. Uh, but I think the, there will be much more of a conscious effort to replicate the look and feel of the original trilogy and follow on from that. Um, so, so we shall, we shall see. I mean, one, one interesting thing that comes out of that is, you know, more, way more of episode one of the Phantom Menace was actually, um, real models. Right. Most of the spaceships in that were, were real models. And, uh, Yoda, at least in the original version was, was still a puppet. Um, they hadn't quite got all the way there. Um, so it was, you know, it was very early CGI. It wasn't as dominant as we remember until episode two. Um, but yeah, it definitely, it, it aged a lot faster than I think anyone expected at the time. Although I found it interesting, the one thing that you you say in the or you mentioned in the book, and I'm not sure if it was your statement or something, someone else said it does help to show when you if you think of it as a linear after number three going to number four, you could see how things things had gotten pretty bad with the empire and things got mm. pretty uh, you know with with things looking terrible and the, the used universes you've mentioned and yeah. and so in that sense it works. Uh, that is the official explanation. Right. That, you know, the that, galaxy was all shiny and new right. in, in the prequel era. And then, uh, you know, the Empire just ran it into the ground, basically, and everything got, got dirty. <laughs> anyway, then sort of to wrap things up, what are your plans going forward? Do you hope to continue to write on the topic? Or is it is it have you felt you've said everything you really need to say on the topic? Well, um, not everything I need to say because it is changing so fast. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I have the opportunity of, uh, you know, the next edition of the book and, of course, eventually the the paperback edition of the book. I will be able to um, update what I've written about, for example, Star Wars Rebels, about which we knew almost nothing um, when uh, when I was writing the original book. Uh, Everything is changing so fast in in the Star Wars universe that, um, there, there is, there is much more to add, and you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty comprehensive uh, body of work here, but uh, it will definitely be revisited uh, in in later years, um, you know, as I have the opportunity to do that. But I still definitely, I, I would like it very much to be the one volume um, that that covers everything you need to know about Star Wars and its fandom. You know, um, I don't see a how Star Wars Conquered the Universe Volume 2. Right. You know, I see more of a How Star Wars Conquered the Universe Special Edition. <laughs> so you're going to tweak, huh? <laughs> there were, you know, I'm not going to change uh, whether Han shoots first, but there will be, there will be, you know, there will be an extra chapter on Episode 7 once we know a lot more about that. And, uh, maybe going forward, you know, if, if, if this continues to be a popular book and, uh, we have many more editions down the line. Then, obviously, I can add chapters about the spin-off movies, about episodes eight and nine, uh, the the reaction to the sequel trilogy, as we must start to call it. 
Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely room for expansion of the book itself. Maybe you'll finally find someone who really doesn't know anything about Star Wars <laughs> that you can show it. You can change your introduction. You know, I, I would say to your listeners, you know, if if you find if you find anyone, anyone at all who has you know completely no clue about any of the characters or quotes in the franchise, please do uh, tweet at me. I'm, I'm Future Boy on Twitter. And, uh, you know, please do let me know, because I would love to find that. I would love to find that one person. Yeah, I've actually like tweeted that. at you once or twice already myself. Yes, yes, indeed. But, this is... uh, but yeah, all listeners, feel, please feel free to, to get in touch. Well, and lastly, how much are you, I was going to say, are you looking forward, but I, that's not fair. How much are you looking forward to December 18, 2015? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to, because, you know, the... The, I think the the lesson, one of the lessons we learned from the prequels was the more that you anticipate something, uh, the higher expectations are, and uh, you know the the more seriousness you invest in a franchise that really has a lot of levity in its soul. Um, so I'm, you know, I I'm sort of fascinated in it because the telling the story of it is part of me now. You know, Star Wars has kind of thrown me up against the wall as well um, and uh, you know but so so I'm interested in telling the story of how the culture reacts to it uh, personally speaking I'm trying not to think about you know where I'm going to be and how I'm going to feel if, if that movie sucks or <laughs> uh, whatever but you know I, I'm, I've always described my, my approach to episode 7 as cautiously optimistic I think they've got the best possible team that they can manage. I mean, the the casting choices that they made have been just terrific. Um, that could still produce a turkey, as we know. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful mainly because it has such a low bar to jump in terms of being better than the prequels. Well, I think uh, part of it is also what's likely to come out of this is a whole new group of discussions to have where we can compare or simple or certain topics such as women in Star Wars and how the the sequels might change the whole thing because of you know one of the big complaints we've consistently had about the you know the, the Lucas years is that women aren't as uh, strong in the in the Star Wars universe and we'll be interesting to see if that changes in in the pre, in the sequels and a lot of other things that are likely to change because Indeed, of a completely yeah. new of completely new group of people making the movie. It is going to start to mirror our world a little bit more, I think. That that will be one interesting change. So, uh today I've been talking to Chris Taylor of Mashable, but also for our purposes, the author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, the past, present and future of a multi billion dollar franchise i really appreciated you discussing your book with me and i'm glad we had a chance to talk well thank you joel this is a lot of fun